0: So it is my responsibility for the next couple of weeks to uh, take you on a series of lessons before we begin our next semester of life groups. And so i chosen to teach you on a concept that I think is a, an entire Bible concept on, um, on the bride. And um, I, I can only, you know, I'm limited. I can only see things um, through the lens of my own personal experience. Um, I remember when we bought the property to the north of us, there was, it was all weeds and overgrown and there were little outbuildings. I don't, there were five or six of them over there and you couldn't see them really they were just covered up with weeds and i remember when we finally got possession of that property i i took my dad over there with me and we pried open one of the doors of of one of those outbuildings and the entire building the the it wasn't big it was probably 10 by 10 but the entire building was full of egg cartons styrofoam egg cartons thousands and thousands of them and then we pried open another door and it was full of cardboard cylinders from toilet paper except the toilet paper was gone all it was was just a cardboard cylinder thousands and thousands and thousands of them and then we went to the next building and it was full of pieces of of wood, uh, not, not like chop wood for fireplace wood, but, you know, um, planed wood. But, but there wasn't a piece longer than probably 12 or 14 inches. They were all cutoffs. And, and I asked my dad, I said, do you have any idea what's going on here? And he said, oh yes, he said, uh, makes perfect sense to me. And I said, okay, what, he said, the depression he said, these people lived through the depression. And he said, if you would have, Harold, he said, uh, you never threw anything away, never. And um, I, I didn't live through the Great Depression. I was born in 1957. I wasn't there uh, when uh, Pearl Harbor was uh, bombed. Um, but, I, but I find myself asking this question more and more. In the light of Bible prophecy, what do I think this means? What do I think is going on? And uh, it, it, it's it's my opinion, and I preface these lessons with this. Um, I, it is my opinion that, that 9-11 opened up a Pandora's box in in this country. And um, it's not original with me, but uh, I'm going to read you a passage that I think describes what happened uh, on September 11th. This is from Ezekiel. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind and thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thy hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. This, this is the message. It says, at that time, you'll start thinking things over and cook up an evil plot. You'll say, I'm going to invade a country without defense, attacking an unsuspecting carefree people, going about their business, No gates to their cities, nor locks on their doors. And I'm going to plunder the place, march right in, clean them out. This rebuilt country, risen from the ashes, these returned exiles and their booming economy, centered down at the navel of the earth. Now I know that uh, uh, when you really get down to it, it's talking about Israel, but I do believe it, it it could be a picture of America. And uh, there are seven seals uh, mentioned in the opening chapters of Revelation. And when the first seal was opened, it says a conquering spirit was loosed upon the earth. It's the second seal that intrigues me. It says in verse three of chapter six, when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see, And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Um, Again, I think it's a description. It could be a description of where we are. It it appears to me that peace has been taken from this earth. And... uh, Um, I don't think it's coming back until the king of peace returns with his church. He is called the prince of peace, but a prince is not a king. He's a king in waiting. I think there's a lot of difference between the prince of peace. Bible talks about the prince of the power of the air. The power of the air is the Lord. The prince in waiting is Satan. He'll be the king if the king in power now dies or abdicates, but we have a problem with that. The Bible said, the Lord almighty omnipotent reigneth. And in the original language, it's a present progressive word, which means I'm doing it and I'm just gonna keep on doing it. And so I don't think the king is going to die or abdicate the throne. So I think Satan is relegated to a prince status. Uh, I remember years ago, my wife used to get a, a very expensive magazine called the Architectural Digest. It, I don't know, it, it was seven or eight bucks on the newsstand, but they'd send us these things in the mail and say, Give us ten bucks and you can have a whole year. So I'd send them ten bucks and they, I'd get whatever, 90 to, $90 to $100 worth of magazines for ten bucks. And uh, uh, I just quit her what would I call that? Her uh, prescription to that magazine, huh? Subscription. No, it was a prescription. I had it right the first time. It was, was, she was hooked. She was hooked on prescription drugs, but it was a magazine prescription. And uh, it just looks to me like the interior decorators of this country have gone stupid and uh, So I just quit getting her the magazine because I couldn't find any room any room of a house in the magazine that Looked like it it was pretty they were all ugly and uh, (laughs) Sign of the time but I remember opening up Architectural Digest and there on the premier page, which right inside the front cover, you could buy a watercolor painted by Prince Charles. Not a copy, you could buy an actual watercolor from him. And they weren't terribly expensive, a couple thousand bucks, but it wasn't like it was a 100,000 or, you know, it was, you could actually get a watercolor painted from him Balmero Castle or Windsor Castle or whatever, and I just remember looking at it and thinking, this guy has been to the greatest colleges in the world he has lived a life of privilege and he's painting watercolors and trying to hawk them on our, in a magazine that's the frustration of being a prince uh she how old is the queen she's almost 100 and she I don't think she's 100 yet but i know prince philip he's he's 99 i think and uh doesn't look to me like the old girl's interested in setting down anytime soon. And if you, think, if you think Charles has been frustrated, you ought to talk to Satan. Trust me, that is one frustrated prince. Because he is never, ever going to be in charge. And um, when he comes back, th- th- this verse intrigues me. It's in 1 Corinthians 6 and 2. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Wow. I believe that is what will happen. Remember, he's coming back, and those that are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. I think that's just what this is talking about, something that's going to happen at a future date. Um, But is, is what we are dealing with now, is it possible it's what Jesus referred to as beginning of sorrows and um, I I will try this is a verse that I'll do my best to live by in these lessons Uh, and really whenever I speak to you it's in Proverbs 11 and verse 1 it said a false balance is an abomination to the Lord but a just weight is his delight so I'll try my best to be balanced Uh, Here's Acts 17 and 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. It's talking about the people of Berea. So uh, I'll do my best to be a good Berean here in our Bible class. And uh, because I'm aware of verses that say now we look through a glass darkly. Uh, another one says, of that day, an hour, no one knows. Uh, one verse says, in an hour you would not expect. Uh, Jesus one time said, it's not for you to know, you know. Uh, but there's another side of the argument. And here is a verse that intrigues me. It's in Mark 13 and verse 23. But take ye heed, behold. I have foretold you all things. There were many things that Jesus taught his disciples that they didn't get it. And later on in Luke 24, it said he opened up their understanding concerning the scripture. I, I, a third of the Bible's prophecy, but basically for most of my ministry, I have avoided prophecy because I, I am one of those people that's cursed with I don't want to get involved in something if I can't completely understand it. It's very difficult for me to, to just get partial understanding of something. And so when I look at prophecy, um, it, 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 there's just parts of it I don't get. And um, uh, there is, however, one verse that's always stood out to me, and this is it. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's uh, Revelation 19 and 10 and so For most of my life, I have seen prophecy used as something to either terrify somebody with or exalt just a handful of special people. These are the prophecy guys, you know. And uh, I fell under the sway of an old preacher in Florida years ago and he said, I don't know a lot about prophecy but I know as much as anybody else. And I guess my guess is as good as the next guy. But uh, I think we're getting into a time right now when we're gonna find out real soon which one of these guys have been telling the truth. (laughs) And, And one thing is certain, this thing I can tell you for sure. If you will take the truths of prophecy and revelation into your heart, they will demand radical change in your personal life and we will begin to prepare our hearts for his coming. And we'll wanna share this truth with other people so they can prepare. And uh, what would you do if you could pick up a newspaper today and it would tell you everything that's going to happen for the next 30 years? How valuable would that newspaper be? Uh, Well, the truth is you can because the Bible is is what you could call the first rough draft of history. And Revelation begins with this verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. I'm gonna tell you what's about to happen. That's how that book begins. I remember the day when my first daughter was married my wife still hasn't told me how much that day cost. Um, uh, she hid stuff from me for several years on credit cards that I she didn't think I knew that she had. She just did everything she could to make that a very special day for that girl. And I love her for that. But we probably could have bought a very nice car for what that cost, maybe a house. Uh, Whenever I perform a marriage, if you've ever been with me in a marriage in this church or anywhere else, I always remind the crowd that what's going on on that day is it's a a billboard. It's a marquee. It's an advertisement for for a, a, a coming great event that just as that bride was being taken that day by her groom. It is a picture that the Lord, the great bridegroom, is going to come for his bride. And when you get down to it, when you really get down to it, and I've argued with pastors about this point for many years, but when you really get down to it, there's only one Bible definition for marriage. And it's found in the book of Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. Yet ye say, wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. I am convinced that marriage is a covenant of companionship, and, and, and I introduced this concept to you last week, the type scene of a marriage in the bible there was always a go-between there was a price that was negotiated on for the purchase of uh, the dowry you could call it for this bride and then the bride had to agree on this price and then they had a meal and then the bridegroom left and at that point the betrothal was complete and they were technically married and the groom leaves to build a much better place by the well and returns to the blowing of the shofar and the friend of the bridegroom announcing that the bridegroom has come and the bridesmaids with their oil-filled lamps lighting the way to the new house and the magnificent meal that goes on at that house and the consummation of the covenant and all of the picture, the typology that's there that when he leaves, she goes and washes and his name is called out over her. Marriage is is a picture of this amazing truth that God has always desired a covenant of companionship because the Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. It is uh, Genesis four and verse one. This uh, marriage was consummated in chapter four of verse and verse one, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. She had a son. She said, I have gotten a man child from the Lord. And uh, if we have time later on, we'll go to Revelation 12, which I think talks about the pregnant bride of Christ. And uh, the bride of Christ is also mentioned in chapter 19 and chapter 21 of Revelation. But in chapter 12, he has already come and he has taken his bride and the marriage is consummated. And in chapter 12, she brings forth a man child. Jesus began his ministry at a marriage in Cana of Galilee. John 2 and verse 1 says, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And uh, there's, there's so much prophecy there, but uh, the next verse is just as important. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And uh, uh, if you obey the gospel, you, you, you get a wedding invitation. And uh, at this wedding, Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And uh, he declared the end from the beginning. So we must be a student of the beginning if we're going to understand the events of the end. So this may be a little bit boring tonight, but I've gotta lay the basis and the groundwork for what I wanna teach you for the next four weeks. Because we have to go back to the beginning in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is filled with marriage language. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's bride. And it says in Isaiah 54 and verse five and six, for thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. But if you know your Bible, the covenant that God had with Israel was broken. And this is what Jeremiah said about that. The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. And I said, after she had done all these things, turn thou unto me, but she returned not. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw when for all the causes whereby backsliding backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not, but went and played the harlot also. And it came to pass through the lightness of her whoredom that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and with stocks. God divorced Israel and Judah because they committed adultery with other gods. So in Isaiah 50 and verse one, thus saith the Lord, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourself, and your transgression is your mother put away." So God is the way and the life and the truth. And since he is the truth, he cannot violate his own nature. So he can't break his own law. So let me read to you what his law says in Deuteronomy 24. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house or if the latter husband die, which took her, which is the second husband, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled. For that is an abomination unto the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Here's the message. If a man marries a woman, and it happens that he no longer likes her because she's found something, he has found something wrong with her, he may give her divorce papers, put them in her hand, and send her off. After she leaves, if she becomes another man's wife and he also comes to hate her, and the second husband also gives her divorce papers, puts them in her hand and sends her off, or if he should die, then the first husband who divorced her can't marry her again. She has made herself ritually unclean and her marriage would be an abomination in the presence of God and defile the land with sin, this land that God, your God, is giving you as an inheritance. So when I read that, it seems very, very clear to me. You can't remarry the woman you divorced. That's his law. So God can't violate his own law. This is what Ezekiel said in 16 and 32. But as a wife that committeth adultery would take to strangers instead of her husband. Here's verse 59. For thus saith the Lord God, I will even deal with thee as thou hast done, which has despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Here's the message. God the master says, I'll do to you just as you have already done. You who have treated my oath with contempt and broken the covenant. But after these strong words of judgment, I find these words of comfort. Here's Ezekiel 16 and verse 62. And I will establish my covenant with thee. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth anymore because of thy shame, when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord. Again, here's the message. I'll firmly establish my covenant with you, and you'll know that I am God. You'll remember your past life and face the shame of it. But when I make atonement for you, make everything right after all you've done, it will leave you speechless. So it seems very obvious to me that God is going to reestablish his covenant, not with Israel as a nation as a whole. I Wish I had time to deal with this, but I'm not good enough and well-versed in enough of it to really deal with it tonight, but we will later. The Bible talks about two witnesses that are going to preach to the nation of Israel. And it doesn't say the nation will be saved as a whole, but those who do recognize the Lord as the Messiah and repent will be spared. The same scenario that I found in the book of Ezekiel, It's the same scenario that I found in Hosea. Hosea, you remember, was married to a prostitute by the name of Gomer. She had three children. You've got no DNA back then. Hosea doesn't know if any of these kids are his biological children. But this is what it says in Hosea two and verse two. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adultery from between her breasts." I'll be careful as I read this, but uh, here's what the message says. Haul your mother into court. She's no longer my wife. I'm no longer her husband. Tell her to quit dressing like a whore and showing her breast for sale which goes to what the pastor has said for years. If it's not for sale, don't put it in the window. But again, the harsh is followed with the promise. Here's Isaiah 3 and 5. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter day." Something's going to happen in the future. I found this verse in Matthew twenty-one and verse forty-three. Therefore, say unto you, Thy kingdom shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Here's the message: This is the way it is with you. God's kingdom is talking to you. God's kingdom will be taken from you and hand it over to a people who will live out a kingdom life. I wonder who that is. Because the next verse says, if you fall on him, you'll be broken. If he falls on you, you're gonna be crushed. That's 44, here's 45. The spiritual leaders knew he was talking about them. (laughs) So the fruit bearing nation that he is talking about, I'm absolutely convinced is the church. And it's obvious the church, the early church, included Jews who recognized who he was. Here's 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be a slave or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. This is an amazing verse. It's in Ephesians chapter two and verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity or the hatred, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of two, one new man, so making peace. So here's verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. This is very relevant right now because what this is saying is salvation is not ever going to be by race. It's going to be by grace. We accept the terms. Remember? A go-between, negotiates between the bride and the bridegroom. And the bride has to accept the terms The more and more I study this, this just becomes so prominent in my heart because the the bride accepts the terms. And when he leaves, she washes and has his name called out over her and rises to walk in newness of life and begins. He's not the only one making preparations. She's making preparations for his return. And when the Lord poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, it is so obvious. It was a Jewish church. But in verse chapter 18 and verse 5, Paul and when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in his spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads, I'm clean. And from now on, I'm going to the Gentiles, I'm not preaching to you anymore. This is vital to understand this concept in the light of what I'm gonna to try to deal with in the next couple of weeks. Let me talk to you first of all about some brides in the Old Testament. Because, of course, it says in King James, all these things happened unto them, for examples unto us, and they are written for our, not theirs, but for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Listen to what I found and Amplified. Now, these things befell them by way of a figure as an example and warning to us They were written to admonish and fit us for right action by good instruction. We, in whose days the ages have reached their climax, their consummation and concluding period. I can't teach you about the bride in the New Testament and ignore the brides in the Old Testament. I found at least seven important brides in the Old Testament. The first one I found was Eve. Her lesson is she was the bride that was taken from the body. He opened his side, and what he took from the side of Adam was where his bride came from. It's not by chance that they shoved that spear into his side and out came blood and water which are the sacraments of the new covenant. And just as Adam and Eve became one flesh on the sixth day, at the end of the sixth day of redemption, Christ and his bride will be reunited in marriage. Eve teaches us, she's the first bride. She came from his side. The next real bride that I found important was Sarah. Sarah is what I'll call the bride of restoration. In Genesis 18 and verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. But Sarah was restored. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11, through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. What is Sarah's picture and what is her lesson, the type scene for us today? She used to be young. She used to be fertile. She got old. She lost the ability to have children, the way of women. And just as Sarah was restored in her old age to fruitfulness, this has to happen to the New Testament church. Listen to these verses in Acts three. Repent thee therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you. Watch whom the heavens must receive until the time of the restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, as near as I can tell, there are 40 men in the Bible that we can call prophets. I've never done it, always wanted to do it. But I think if you would take the time and read and study the word of the Lord, somewhere in there, every one of these men would have something to say about restitution. What does the Bible say is restoration? Well, when I studied the story and the restoration prayer of David, Psalms 51, what does he say? Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I am sorry, but I meet people who just act like seven mother-in-laws moved in with them last week. Sunday after church, between the services, some lady, I thought the service at the beginning was milder. It's it's never the same, which I'm glad of. Uh, We don't want one service being consecutively and consistently better than the other, because then the other service will be treated like a stepchild. And people said, no, I want to go to that service because that's when the good stuff always happened. Sometimes it's the second service that in my mind is better than your first. Sometimes it's been the first that's better than the second. My personal opinion is that the first service this past Sunday was a little meeker and milder than the second service was. And, uh, um, uh, I, 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 but but even though I consider the first one a little more tame, when I was in the break room with our, with our team, getting ready for the second service, this lady said, came in and she said, I, am, I, I do not mean to bother you, I'm sorry. I know I'm not supposed to be back here, but she said, I can't help it. She said, that was the greatest church service I've ever been in in my life. That's what she said to me. She said, I have never, She said, I've been coming here for several weeks, but she said, it's always been good. But today the music was exceptional. She said, the word of the Lord was amazing. And I wanted to say, I didn't really think it was that hot. My part, I thought the music was good. I didn't think I did that good of a job. But I remember I was with Billy Cole years ago and I did a a terrible job. I mean, I muddied the water. I was so ashamed. And when I got done, this lady came up and she said, that was the greatest message I've ever heard in my life. And I said, well, you're a very accomplished liar. Thank you for trying to encourage me. And she looked at me and walked away and Billy rebuked me. And he said, here's your problem, Harold. You have a level of oration and oratory that you want to arrive at every time you preach. And when you don't get to that level of speaking ability, you think you did a bad job. He said, now let me tell you what just happened. That woman was sincere because he said it wasn't the messenger, it was the message that you were preaching. Your problem, Harold, is you've exalted the messenger over the message and you're underestimating the power of the word of God. And I needed rebuke because he was right. And that lady Sunday just came in there and I thought I could have done better. There were things I would have changed. She said it was the best service she's ever been in in her life, and she was telling the truth. If you don't believe that, go to mass. If you don't believe that, go to one of them. One of them, Go go to one of them dead places where that guy's swinging that plate with them smoke. Go 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 go! Just go through all that, and, and uh, it's just we got nothing to be. I uh, ah boy, I was asked to to speak somewhere between the North Pole and the South Pole a couple of years ago to pray and I was afraid, I was nervous, and I tried to get out of it. I knew it was on, nas- or not national, but it was on television, and uh, as and, and soon as I got there, the television producer said, you'll be happy to know we're in at least 18 million homes right now, and that didn't help me at all. I went to the bathroom and threw up, I did. And I got on that platform, and all of a sudden they had some rabbi in front of me, and he prayed the worst prayer I've ever heard in my life. Then I heard some Orthodox priest pray, and it was like, Are you kidding me? And then they had a Muslim cleric pray. And I stood there or sat there and said, That's the best you got? I got nothing to be ashamed of. I'm better than all you guys put together. And I was. I'm a great preacher. And people say, that's arrogant. No, no, no. Anybody that preaches the truth is a great preacher. I preach the truth. I'm a great preacher. I'm just telling you, we take for granted what we think is a mild-mannered apostolic service. If you've never been in one, it could be one of the most refreshing experiences you've ever had. Lord, Lord. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. It says in Psalms 23, he will restore your soul. I think that's your thought life and your emotions. The Bible said in Joel 2, he will restore to you the years, the years that have been wasted. Isaiah 58 talks about he'll restore the old paths. It says in Isaiah 57 and 18, he will restore comfort in the time of mourning. Nehemiah 5 and 11 said, God will restore his blessings on your life. And one that I refer to all the time is Amos 9 and verse 11. He will restore and rebuild the tabernacle of David which I personally think is an Old Testament form of worship instituted under David that was gone and fell apart when Solomon became king, but when the New Testament church not just had good doctrine, but they had great worship. And in Acts 15, which is the first fight in the New Testament church over racism, James, the half brother of Jesus, said the reason we have this great harvest is not just because of our doctrinal stance, but because of the way we're worshiping. We have great doctrine in Pentecost. There is no more scripturally documented doctrine in the Bible than water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. We're right about that. Being filled with the spirit to a point where he takes over the hardest thing of your life to control, which is your tongue. When he can take your tongue and magnify him in a language you don't know, that's legitimate power. That's We're right about that. That God is not three persons in a, in a triage of beings. We're right about that but this thing about lifting your hands and clapping and standing up and musicians and instruments and uh, we're right about that. How exciting it is to live right now because the glory of the latter house must exceed the glory of the former house. Praise God. Praise God. The next bride that I found was Rebecca. She is what I'll call the bride of separation. The longest chapter in the book of beginnings. The longest chapter in Genesis is chapter 24. It is the story of a father sending a servant to find a bride for his son. She's related to Abraham by blood. She was a virgin. She's drawing water from the well at evening. She's serving that water to anyone that wants it. She receives gifts. She was willing to separate herself from her family and go to where her new bridegroom would be. She met Isaac in the field. I wish I had time to talk to you about that. You wanna meet the Lord, make sure you're in the field. That's where the meeting takes place. She was loved and she was married by Isaac. Rebecca teaches us something that Eve didn't teach us. She taught us that we're gonna be a separated people. We're gonna be willing to leave our comfort zone and be a part of something else. Rachel is the next bride that I can find. She's the shepherd bride. Like like like, like Rebecca, she is introduced to us at a well. There, there were three flocks of sheep waiting to drink at the well. There's so much typology here. I, I wish I had time to teach you, but John, John wrote in, in 1 John, he, he wrote about little children. He wrote about young men. He wrote about fathers. I, I don't have it. She was a keeper of the sheep. She, she is an amazing Old Testament bride. Ruth is the next bride I could find. She's what I'll call the bride of the visitation. You will find if you study anything about Orthodox Judaism during the Feast of Pentecost, the book of Ruth was always read during the Feast of Pentecost because it was a time of harvest. Ruth is a Gentile woman. She's from Moab. The Bible said Moab is his wash pot. It's where he does his dirty laundry. She was a Gentile woman, but finds a place of unique acceptance because she's willing to look at her mother-in-law and listen to what she says. She said, your God is going to be my God. She said, wherever and however you get buried, I'm going to get buried the same way. And whatever and whoever you call people, they are going to be my people. That's a great picture of making a covenant with the Lord because you're going to have to find out who he is, that he's not Allah, he is Jesus Christ. you got to understand his name. You need to know who he is. And are you willing to be buried the way others have been buried? Are you willing to be buried with him in baptism? That's important because if you'll do that, then there's something beyond that. There are a people that you've never met who live in Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem is a place of bread. Judah is a place of praise. It always amazed me that Elimelech left Bethlehem, Judah. Why would you leave a place where there's supposed to be bread and a place where there's supposed to be praise? Because there was a famine, which ought to teach us a lesson. We cannot afford the luxury of having one bad church service. There can never be a famine in first church. There's always got to be a place of fresh bread and praise. Because if we don't keep fresh bread served and praise being exalted, people are going to make stupid decisions when there isn't fresh word and great worship. We can't afford that. So he goes to Moab, which wasn't far away. But it's a fascinating. Read the first book of the first verse of Ruth. There was a famine in Bethlehem, Judah, in the time of the judges. We still have the book of Judges. If you read the book of Judges, there's only one famine mentioned there. It was the time when God called things that weren't as though they were. A man hiding behind a wine press by the name of Gideon. And God said, you mighty man of valor. And here he is shivering and and, and hiding behind the wine. He's going, who, who, me? Are you talking about me? Yes, I am. You're going to be a mighty leader. Remember what Paul said? I thank my God. God who counted me worthy. Think of a parade. Think of a hundred floats in the parade. But every one of the floats is a picture of your walk with God. That the first float is a picture of how you were crude and and, and, and just a heathen and didn't know him. And the next 99 floats are pictures of transitions and changes that you made in your life. Until finally when you get to the end of the parade, the last float in the parade is a picture of you serving God with integrity. And with consecration and with strength. This is what Paul is saying. I thank God that he didn't look at the first float in the parade. He literally looked at the end of the whole parade and he counted me worthy before I was even worthy. <laughs> wow, what a deal. What what what, what a deal. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Here's my problem. Elimelech, I don't find any reference to him praying, should we go to Moab or not? But they just left. But I do know that during the time that he left, Gideon had thousands of men join up with him until finally it was winnowed down to just a couple hundred who would shout and shine and drive away the enemy. Here's the sad part of the story. Elimelech could have possibly been one of those hundreds that shouted and shined if he just would have stayed. But he left at the wrong time. And this woman, who's a Gentile, meets a kinsman redeemer and is found in Ephesians. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. And she's steadfast, she's servant, and when she's getting ready to meet Mary Bo's ass, I found this today, I could have just, I, I just stood up and, and just lifted my hands in my office. I never saw it before. It's in Ruth chapter three and verse three. This is what the bridegroom said to his potential bride. He said, wash thyself therefore and anoint thee and put thy raiment upon thee and get down. So this is what he's saying. This is what I want you to do. First I want you to wash. Then I want you to get anointed. And then I want you to put your best duds on. And I think that's what our bridegroom is saying to us. I want you to get washed in my name. I want you to get anointed with my spirit. And then I want you to put on the best garment that you can find. I want you to be different. I want you to prepare yourself to please me. Jesus name, Esther who is what I'll call the orphan, who became a queen. It's one of the it's only two books in the Bible where God is not mentioned. Does anybody know where the other one is? Somebody said it, somebody who said it? Who is it? What is it? Okay, anybody else? The two that I found were Ruth and the Song of Solomon. I'll have to read Esther, but that, 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 it, it, if Esther's one of those, then fine. Is it, isn't it obvious to us that whether God was mentioned or not in any of those books, he was at work? Yeah. And she's prepared, chosen, interceded for her people. I think we'll stop there. That it, it, these, these are Old Testament brides that I think are snapshots Pictures of what you and I should be. That we should be that bride that was taken from his side. That we should be a bride that's restored in our old age. We should be a bride that's willing to separate unto him. We should be a bride that's willing to be involved with the sheep. That we should be a bride that is willing to wash and anoint and put on your best garment and be a part of something that nobody said you were allowed in. And we should be a bride, it says, for such a time as this. It's why I'm here. And in Jesus' name, let's stand. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the pictures, the snapshots. I thank you for the movies. I thank you for the scenes that I can look at through words and I can see not only what I am, but what you want me to be. Lord Jesus, you've gone. You said the bride doesn't need to fast while the bridegroom's with them. But when he's gone, that's when the bridegroom will fast. That's when the bridegroom will listen to the friend of the bridegroom. Amen. And the bride will listen and take instruction. Would you please help me, Lord, as a, as a friend of the bridegroom, to prepare this church for what you want. Please help me, Lord, not to be intimidated by a white envelope that somebody puts in a plate or something that somebody texts on an app. Please, God, help me, not in my older age, to start making spiritual decisions based on money. I'm asking you, God, in these times of this last season of my ministry, I'm asking you, God, that you would help me to do the very best that I can to prepare these people. So that when you come, you would be more than happy to present this church to yourself. That we don't have a spot, we don't have a wrinkle, we don't have anything that would displease you. Please help me, Lord, to have the courage to address the issues that are so culturally relevant to our times that we need to be a people that are willing to separate from family, friends, former relationships, to be gifted and go to another place and be involved in the field to meet our lover and to meet our groom. Guide us, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen, 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 amen. Amen.